Oh, all right, Livy. Are you ready to jump back into the podcast minds and and dig up some more uh, podcast goodness? I guess. Are you okay? Is something wrong? I just, I thought we were doing a musical of Streets of Rage, and I was thinking, like, oh, I didn't know they made a musical of Streets of Rage, and I was thinking, you know, since we're in the video game mindset, last week's episode of uh, Super Mario Brothers, and it wasn't Streets of Rage. I'm just, I don't know, I'm just kind of disappointed. Look, Libby, you sound pretty dumb, but nobody's that dumb. (laughs) Cue our theme music. And welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. This is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans get together and have a rockin' good time talking about all of our favorite movie soundtracks. Hi, my name is Joseph Wade. I will be your co-host for this evening. Here with me tonight, as always, is my lovely and belligerent co-host, Libby Cudmore. Libby, I am so sorry that we got our wires crossed on this one. Hey, there is an upside and that is that we can still make a Streets of Rage musical. You know, there's a, there's a first time for everything. And why not? It will you know? be great. I've already written like half of it. I know. It's, it, it writes itself, really. I know. So. Be- because we have like the perfect framework to work <laughs> off of already. Um, yes. And it's, it's the movie we're talking about tonight, which is uh, 1984's Streets of Fire, which comes from uh, director Walter Hill, and was was uh, recommended to us by a listener, uh, listener Rodney, if you're out there listening. If you're out uh, there listening, you might want to just turn this podcast off right now. Rodney, I'm sorry. We love you, but... Oh, boy. <laughs> just it was, just th- walk this away, This episode's going to be a rough one. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be fun, though. We've got a lot to talk about with this. Oh, yeah. Uh, Streets of Fi- See, I already almost goofed it Streets up. Streets of Rage, of Fire. right? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Two, specifically, is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I have that soundtrack on vinyl. It's amazing. Wait, what? Yeah. You didn't know that? No. <laughs> it's on vinyl. <gasps> because the the video game soundtrack vinyl market has kind of sort of exploded in the last year or two. I gotta go. Okay, well, I guess I'm just going to talk about this uh, movie by myself for the next hour and a half. Uh, so, it's okay, so, I'm back. Oh, I'm back. Oh, thank I God. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, so me, what did I think of this movie? <laughs> but before we get into Streets of Fire, uh, we do have some business to discuss from our last episode. Libby, take it away. All right, so our last episode uh, was the Super Mario Brothers soundtrack. And you guys had a lot of fun with this one. We had a lot of fun recording it. Uh, But we asked what was the best song on the soundtrack. And with 75% of the vote, George Clinton and the Goombas covering Was Not Was Walk the Dinosaur (laughs) won the poll just by an absolute landslide. And I actually discovered something very interesting about this song. Kind of after after the podcast, um, Queen Latifah also recorded a version for Ice Age Three. What? Yep. Oh my god! I know it's pretty depressing, huh? I mean, because you you can't beat the George Clinton version. It's clearly oh, no. the superior version. 
So. But, you, but you know what? You know what can defeat the George Clinton version? Money. I guess. Lots of money. <laughs> I guess. Queen Latifah's version is not good. Um, with 13%, the Divinals covering Roxy Music's Love is the Drug. Okay. And then uh, Almost Unreal by Roxette and Charles and Andy's I Would Stop the World uh, both came in at 6%. Real disappointing showing on Almost Unreal, I have to admit. Now, uh, full disclosure, let's just uh, let's just talk shop for a minute. Libby, what did you vote for? Uh, Almost Unreal. Okay, I voted for I Would Stop the World. So. Okay. Okay, so that <laughs> Every last one lot. of you motherfuckers out there voted against us. Yes, and we always vote uh, really just kind of to get the, the poll started. So nobody likes to be the first person, so. I, excuse me, I love being <laughs> the first person. You're that dude on the internet. So That's me. All right. So. That's me. But uh, yeah, so this this was a lot of fun talking to people online about because like, as I told you in that episode, people like just pounced on that that poll and that episode. They they loved it. Like we got a ton of hits from that. It's yeah. Great. So guys, thanks. And um, for those of you who like Streets of Fire, I'm just again, I'm really sorry about this. I feel really bad. I feel genuinely bad because people really love this movie, and it definitely has a cult movie vibe to it. Um, mm. but it's like Repo Man for new wave nerds. I guess yeah. the best way to describe it. I I think it's it's more interesting than it is good. Yes. Is that a, the best way to put it, I guess? Cuz <laughs> yeah. like I had a good time actually like digging into the like the production history of a mo- of this movie, which is like a telltale sign that the movie itself is maybe not that great. <laughs> yeah, and it's weird cuz I actually did enjoy this movie in all of its sort of goofy glory. It reminded me and as it kind of reminded you of Miami Connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I really feel like this movie was the one they watched on the set of Miami Connection because that's the kind of movie they thought they were making. Actually, when we finished it, I put on Miami Connection and we got about halfway through it before uh, my husband was falling asleep. But um, they would make a good double bill. It it would. The, the, you know what this movie doesn't have, though? Friends for Eternity, Loyalty, Honesty. And also... Ninjas. Motor motorcycle ninjas specifically it does it has have... the motorcycles it doesn't have the ninjas no <laughs> so um, oh man joe why don't you tell us to the best of your ability what streets of fire is about in a nutshell streets of fire is a movie about like the sort of mythologized rock and roll of the 50s and like the whole like greaser biker culture that baby boomers kind of love to idolize in stuff like Greece and the outsiders and this but it's specifically about uh, a character named tom cody who is like your kind of archetypal uh drifter western hero kind of guy trench coat and everything trench coat and his weird winchester like, yes yeah, suspenders and like and slacks combo Mm-hmm. It is. It's. It is very Western. He's. A, he's a man of few words, but he's a man of integrity. He's brought into town to rescue a rock singer named Ellen Aim, played by Diane Lane, because she's been kidnapped by Willem Dafoe and his be- his gang of uh, bikers, who are called. I think they're called. What are they called? The Bombers. <laughs> and so Tom Cody goes on the mission to rescue Ellen, and along the way, he amasses like a, this team of sidekicks. That all join in this mission to basically like save rock, save the soul of rock and roll. Damn it! 
Okay, that went a lot deeper than I thought. But I really think this, the real Streets of Fire I'm, were the friends we made along the way. Just kidding. Everybody in this movie <laughs> hates each other. Yeah. Like, nobody nobody actually likes each other, and nobody really wants to be here is the thing I took away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, this movie, the whole reason this movie exists is basically because, like, once Walter Hill got a hit out of the movie 48 Hours, he kind of realized, like, I could kind of make whatever I want to now. What do I want to make? And the answer was he wanted to make a comic book movie, despite the fact that he didn't like comic books, but he also wanted to make it a love letter to everything that he loved about the 50s, including, but not limited to, and I wrote this down, this is from an interview with this, the co-writer, he wanted to include a movie with featuring custom cars, kissing in the rain, neon, trains in the night, high-speed pursuits, rumbles, rock stars, motorcycles, jokes in tough situations, leather jackets, and questions of honor. Uh, uh sure comic books have all of those things right i guess i don't know um <laughs> this movie really it's it this is the kind of thing that a teenager writes this is yes. a teenager movie this is what a teenager thinks of how a story is put together and it's technically like it has a beginning a middle and an end but as we're going to talk about there's there's no there's no tension. There's never any moments where you think like, oh, they aren't going to get out of this. It is solved almost immediately. And that's it. Yeah, yeah the conflict is resolved very quickly. And then the final hour of the film is just, look at these streets. Aren't they on fire? <laughs> and it's, it was really, it's a short film wrapped around a bunch of music videos by someone who has mm-hmm. never seen a music video. Yes. Like, I really, I genuinely believe that's the case. Like, the people who made this movie probably weren't really big music people. Mm-hmm. Because uh, halfway through the production of this, or halfway through the writing of this movie, uh, a little movie called Flashdance came out, <laughs> and they realized, oh, we've got to r- work some of that into here, too. So, like, halfway through, it suddenly became a musical. So they then had to go find people to write songs for this movie. Oh, and they found them. They sure as hell did. Although, speaking of Flashdance, Maureen Jean, who is the dancer, the real kind of androgynous dancer in the bar Torchies, was Jennifer Beale's dance double. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I, I, I knew I recognized her from somewhere. And I was like, oh, right. So, so In it, the weird it, S&M country bar that's also maybe a gay bar. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, it's like a strip club rockabilly kind of warehouse. Leather bar. bar. Yeah. It's like every... Okay, so we're we're getting... We're spinning out of control here. Let me try to bring this back in. <laughs> I tried to write my one little synopsis for what this movie was. And I said... I, I wrote down, this is a 50s rock and roll action musical with a very exaggerated 80s style where there are gunshots and explosions and sex everywhere, but nobody swears and no one gets killed and nobody gets naked. It's somehow everything and nothing all at the same time. That's a, a good way to put it. It's, yeah, it's violently 80s. And I don't mean that in that it's violent. It's just that you look at this and you're like, yes, that is the 80s. There's You can't be like, oh, I think that's the 50s. Or, oh, I think that's 1998. You, you know it is 1984. You took literally everything I just said and distilled it into two words. I hate you so much. 
All right. However, the soundtrack of this is, it's, it's interesting. I guess it's different, I guess, as they would say in the Midwest. Well, it's different. It's different. It's the reason people remember this movie. Yes. And And there's a lot, there's a lot to it. And just how it was, was put together. And in some incredibly baffling ways. Mm hmm. It lasted kind of in the cultural like conscience a lot longer than the movie did, mm-hmm. which I guess is as good a time as any to go into billboarding school for a minute. This won't take long because I didn't find a whole lot. Okay. Uh, so the album came out May 29th, 1984. It hit. It debuted at 129 on the Billboard Hot 200 album charts. That same week. Here are the other soundtrack albums that were out on the charts. Number one was Footloose. Yes. In its ninth of ten straight weeks at number one. Which is interesting that you mentioned that because the opening number, I wrote in my notes, extremely 80s quasi-Footloose opening. It has the mm, same kind yeah. of guitar riff. It does, yeah, absolutely. But then you get uh, the soundtrack to Breakin', the prequel to Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> like, Against All Odds with Jeff Bridges. Beat Street, which is basically like off-brand breaking, Flashdance, The Big Chill, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, okay, The Big Chill Volume Two, oh and Spinal Tap, all were above Streets of Rip Fire on the the charts, and then Streets of Fire kind of slides in there underneath. Okay, uh, it spent twenty one weeks on the charts. The week that it left the charts was the week that Purple Rain debuted at number one. Yes, indeed. So. Uh, it kind of hung around for a little bit and then disappeared. At the box office, though, uh, the movie cost $14.5 million to make, and it, it only made $8 million. How is so, that one compared to Super Mario Brothers? Where is that on the Super Mario Brothers scale of flop? Ooh, that's a good question. Hang on, real quick. Uh, so Super Mario Brothers cost $48 million and it made $20 million. So that's relatively similar. Yeah, so not quite half. Uh, both both soundtracks have like one kind of hit song that everybody remembers and some other stuff going on too. All things now um, will be measured by Super Mario Brothers. Yes. How many Super Mario Brothers is this soundtrack worth? <laughs> one Mario Brother, but it's Luigi. That's a I mean that's pretty good, right? <laughs> it's Luigi. Uh so so where do we want to start with Streets of Fire? I feel like I'm gonna be calling this Streets of Rage all night. We're gonna be calling everyone just get used to it. We're calling it Streets of Rage. No, I think um the best way is gonna be going through the soundtrack itself. Okay. Rather than because the film is a jumbled mess. This is true. So okay. let's, and it goes for the most part, uh song by song as it appears in the movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the, even though the very last song in the movie appears third on the soundtrack yes um and that would actually be like blue shadows appears earlier but um so yeah we'll just yeah, so we're just gonna go song we'll there's, by there's, song. there's not a whole lot to the movie so let's just jump right in All right. Uh, so what kicks off the movie uh we start with nowhere fast which is uh, performed by Ellen Aim and the Attackers. That's uh, Diane Lane. However, it is performed by a uh, band called Fire Inc. Do you want to talk about Fire Inc. really quickly? Um, 
All I can tell you about Fire Inc. is that it's basically a pseudonym for a bunch of studio musicians and also Jim Steinman, because the song was written by Jim Steinman. And if you're not familiar with Jim Steinman, just go and listen to basically any Meatloaf song, because yes. he wrote most of them. And with and when you hear this, uh, let's actually play a clip right there. this you instantly know it's jim steinman um jim jim steinman also wrote holding out for a hero which appears on the footloose soundtrack so he was very busy this year and also or, the shrek 2 soundtrack yes you had to get that in there of course i did <laughs> so there there are these enormous set pieces they're incredibly complex and loud and big and this is 100% a Jim Steinman production here on Nowhere Fast. For more information on Jim Steinman, your best bet is to check out the Beyond Yacht Rock podcast. They have a Songs of Jim Steinman episode, and they go through a lot of them. They do not actually talk about this one. Really? Yes, which huh. I was I was surprised. Get it together, guys. But yeah, like one of like Jim Steinman's kind of hallmarks is he likes to write very, very long verses and make his singers sing them as fast as possible. Yes, uh, he is getting nowhere fast. Yeah. And you're either really into that or really, really not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm kind of somewhere in between because I do like a lot of Meatloaf songs, but like it does get tiresome after a yeah. while. They're exhausting. They're very tiring songs. Now, with this one. What happens, so um, it opens on Ellen Ames. She's doing this uh, benefit show in this weirdly poodle-skirted part of Chicago that mm-hmm. I guess is her hometown. And it's being put on by her producer boyfriend, Rick Moranis, who I love. Billy Fish. <laughs> I love him. He is so cute, except the halfway through the film, I realized he looked exactly like my ex-boyfriend, Aaron. <laughs> Of not letting me see Godzilla fame. Oh, no. And I was torn. I was, like, deeply upset for the rest of the movie because I'm like, Rick Moranis is so cute. But he looks like my ex-boyfriend. My ex-boyfriend was not cute. But Rick Moranis is really... <laughs> I was like, I, it was just this, like, puzzle going over and over and over in my head. So, um, you know, and he's... And he- com- He's complaining because they're not making any money on this. And this really shitty part of town. And... As she's singing this, she gets kidnapped by a ridiculously good-looking Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Like, Willem Dafoe's entrance in this movie is maybe my favorite part of the entire movie. Because while she's singing the song, this motorcycle gang, you know, we cut away and see this motorcycle gang coming up to the nightclub venue. And they open the doors, and all you see is just, like like heads bobbing to the music and uh, as the gang comes in and then all of a sudden boom there he is will like a close-up of willem dafoe's face and he's creepy as shit yes but his cheekbones are so high he looks like you know he looks like johnny depp he kind of does like when was willem dafoe hot (laughs) why was i not informed 1984 apparently so and he is he is not much of a presence in this film but he's here just long enough to just 
make an impression because good lord the very first thing he does in the movie is as soon as this song ends he screams and like bloody anger jumps the stage and punches ellen aim right in the face yeah that's when he punches rick moranis in the face i'm like get your fucking hands off him it's a <laughs> national treasure and then they kidnap ellen and right off with her and the cops can do basically nothing yeah about they're just it. like well that's all we can do but the problem with this song if you listen to it sort of separate from the movie mm-hmm. is that she's supposed to be the main singer right and she's, uh, uh, Lori Sargent is actually the one providing, uh, Diane Lane's vocals. They're set so far back in the mix that she's almost overpowered by the other, uh, backing musicians. Yeah. And, and let's be clear right now. Like Diane Lane is not singing any part of this, nope. like at all. She's just playing the part of the singer. Mm-hmm. And so it, it almost doesn't matter who's singing the song because they're all singing so fast you can't tell yeah, one but, from the other. But it just it doesn't have she doesn't have the right kind of voice for this song. This needs to be more of a Pat Benatar voice. And Yeah, I could see that. And hers is a little it's a little sort of generically masculine, and that might also be because uh the uh, backup vocals, which were uh, Rory Dodd, Holly Sherwood, and Eric Troyer, are so forward in the mix mm-hmm. that they sort of overpower uh, Laurie Sargent's. Yeah. yeah. And I'd like Ellen's voice to be a little rougher and a little more, a little more feminine. I think mm. to really sell that that image. And I I think they picked the wrong the wrong singer on this one because it just doesn't it's a it's a good song it's it's well composed and it's well put together it just doesn't work for her yeah and and like on top of the fact on top of that like you, you really have to be a particular kind of singer to even sing a jim steinman song in the first place mm-hmm. so like they got someone who's kind of off and like like you said it shows you can tell um I'm just now finding out, though, that Meatloaf himself did do a version yes, of this song. Yes, he did. So I'm going to have to go track that down later. So, yes, indeed. To see um, if that makes a difference. There is a shaped picture disc you can buy. Ooh. I know. Right. For fancy. <laughs> so this this one, it there there should be a better version of this. Because it's a fine song. Um, Bonnie it, Tyler would fucking knock this one out of the park. Oh, yeah, she would. Yeah. But, like. <laughs> Uh, singer aside, this is like a great way to start the film because it's like extremely high energy and extremely just, I, I don't know. It's, I don't even know how to put it into words. It's just. It's big. Like it's bombastic. It's it's big and bombastic and you're going to go somewhere, but <laughs> guess what? This movie goes nowhere fast. <laughs> this movie goes nowhere slow. It just goes nowhere. It's like, <laughs> it's the Gudetama of films. It's just there. Oh. It's depressed. <laughs> So, um, and then as this is all going on, my first like big, my big surprise of the film is that Lee Ving is in this movie. Who? Lee Ving is the lead singer of the band Fear. You might know him as Mr. Body in the Clue movie, (gasps) but, uh, he's like the second in command of this motorcycle gang and he's basically just like screaming at everybody. They keep cutting to shots of him just screaming at people. (laughs) But uh, uh, he, we, we last encountered him on the Repo Man soundtrack at, as he's the lead singer of the band Fear. Yes. 
I feel like I feel like he would have been a better villain than Willem Dafoe because like Willem Dafoe's super creepy, but he's not he doesn't do much. But Lee Ving, he's the kind of guy you feel like he will kick you off your motorcycle. Yeah, he seems insane. I do want to make a note. I'm kind of surprised that John Doe of X wasn't in this film. Huh. This just seems yeah. like he would have been really good in uh in the other bar. Um what was that other bar called? Torchies. I yeah, Torchies. I, I feel like yeah. he should have been at Torchies. Mm. So maybe he wasn't. I mean, he was still with X at that point. So uh, he, he, I don't think he broke into film until uh, until Roadhouse or shortly shortly before. Oh, okay. So, but it's it is kind of a this scene, this opening scene, really sets up the film in that stuff happens and nobody cares. In that a singer, apparently a famous singer, is kidnapped in front of a couple hundred people, again, inexplicably dressed in 50s clothes, for a new wave show. She is kidnapped and dragged away screaming on a motorcycle. They light a ton of stuff on fire. And the cops don't do anything. And nobody (laughs) even seems to care. The next yeah, day, no, they're just sort of going about their business. It's like, man, what a bummer that 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 thing happened last night, right? Yeah. <laughs> like nobody comments on it at all. It's not in the papers. It's not on TV. They probably don't even have TV yet at this point in this film. Uh, but it's just it's a non-issue. Mm-hmm. So it's going nowhere fast. <laughs> so our characters have to take it upon themselves to rectify the situation. Yes, and. Uh, Reva Cody, who works at just the a diner that you can feel the grease on everything, like through mm-hmm. your TV screen. She works there, yeah. and she uh, she goes to the trouble to uh, type up a letter to her brother. I would have just written it on I don't know a napkin or something. Uh, Tom Cody to come uh, help her out and to save because apparently he she's the only one that wants to see Ellen saved. Mm-hmm. She's the only one who cares. Yeah. Little diner waitress. And I now I know this was filmed on the the uh the universal backlot cuz they famously had to build a tarp big enough to put over the entire backlot cuz the whole thing had to be set at night. Mhm. And this diner, I am like 95% certain is the same diner from Back to the Future. It might be. Cuz they, they were both on the same like studio lot, so uh, I don't know. That's 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 the kind of stuff that interests me when I watch these movies. So you think it's like the cafe eighties and the that's it's, it's the yeah, it's the fifties version of the cafe eighties. Huh. Do you know? Please write in to us, OSTPartypod at gmail.com. Find us Bob on Twitter. Gale, I know you're listening. <laughs> so Oh boy. Yes. So she brings in Tom to help save uh Ellen. And also, Ellen's boyfriend, Billy, is going to pay him, what, $10,000 to save her? Yes. Is that, yeah. So. Which which is the biggest load of horse shit. Like, he should just go save her. Yeah, but <laughs> he just... I think you had, you, when we were, when we were talking about this um, in our, our chat as we were watching, uh, you came up with the best description of, uh, of Tom Cody. Would you like to share that with our listeners? Yeah, yeah. So, Tom Cody is like if a dumpster fucked a trench coat, the baby that fell out of that union would be Tom Cody. 
So. Like he's just the like worst greaseball drifter you could imagine. <laughs> he just rolls into the film wearing uh, a trench coat and suspenders and crappy pants, and like he looks like he doesn't want to be here because Michael Perry probably didn't want to be there. Yeah, he's basically wearing, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the same outfit that Tom Waits wore in All Gold Canyon. Yes. Yeah. Really. More or less. Michael Perry is here. He's like he's on a quest to find Mister Pocket. Oh, <laughs> and he doesn't want to do it at first. Which is, if you go to, if you go yeah. to the hero's journey uh, structure, which I think this kind of touches on, and then immediately forgets, the hero has to reject the quest before yeah. he takes it on. So he doesn't really want to do it and then decides that he will i guess for the the ten thousand. right so. so they need to give him a they need to give him a reason to go get her like oh it's because she there she's his ex-girlfriend that's not enough he has yeah. to get paid to do this i guess um but in the meantime uh he also meets the mvp of this film possibly any film <laughs> and that is mccoy McCoy, uh, played by Amy Madigan, who, if you're not familiar with her from anything else, she is, um, I forget the character name, but she's Kevin Costner's wife in Field of Dreams. Yes, and she is great, and we love her, and especially because in 1984, she is so clearly a butch lesbian, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's... I guess it's theoretically coded because she says, oh, you're not my type. And she's in the army and she looks like she she looks like McCoy. She Uh, looks like David St. St. Hubbins from Spinal Tap. Yes. Uh. And, you know, she's she's super tough and she's super butch. And that, I guess, you know, they couldn't just come out and have her say like, well, yeah, I'm a lesbian. Um, But she clearly is. And and I love that. I think that's the best. I kind of wanted to see her and Ellen run off together at the end. Actually, you know what? No, fuck Ellen. Ellen doesn't deserve her. We're going to get into that later. Her and Reba. Uh, okay, I was going to say baby doll, but whatever. Sure. I'd be good not? with that too. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I'm good with baby doll. Um, baby doll played by, I don't know the actress's name, but she was uh, also Dottie in Peter's yeah. Big Adventure. Elizabeth Daly. Yes. Yeah, she's great. E.G. Daly, so. Why, why would you not? Why would you put her in a movie like this and not have her sing? I know. That's cause... insane to me. <laughs> she just, she shows up two-thirds of the way through the movie and just tags along and does literally nothing. I know, except be cute. I mean, that's enough, really. But, um, so we're straight so far from the soundtrack. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> Meanwhile, during during all this uh, intro build-up stuff, Bill Paxton shows up. Yes. Uh, the in late the same great scene, Bill Paxton. Yes, the late great Bill Paxton, uh, where he's telling Tom Coney all the stuff that's been going on. He's like, man, I got beat up trying to save your old girl last night. <laughs> he's a ton of fun, and I kind of wish he was in more of this movie, too. Yes. This movie has like, so many good side characters, and all of the main characters, including Billy Fish, are the worst. They're all garbage. Except yeah. for it's- except for Cody. Or sorry. Except for McCoy. McCoy is a hero. This is a McCoy stand podcast, everyone. Absolutely. McCoy cast. Here we go. McCoy Ahoy. <laughs> That's the name of the show. Uh, no, every character that this movie is about 
sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every character this movie is not about is the best. Yes. When after they we're going to jump around in the film because the soundtrack does. So they've broken her free from torches. And they're wandering the streets of fire, which are also streets of rage, as we've established. Um, but not the streets of Philadelphia. No. Um, and <laughs> these, do these streets have names, or are they streets with no names? Mm, that's a good question. Hmm. I really don't know. <laughs> I really, really don't know. But as they're walking through what is either a street or a nightclub, I actually can't tell. Um, they are showing a video of uh ellen aim and the attackers and yes. uh she is performing the song sorcerer let's hear a clip But it is not performed by Stevie Nicks. No. This version, this Ellen Aim, is Marilyn Martin. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, this is my the Ellen Aim I prefer. I uh, I think it's she's in in a better range there. Um. Yeah, and and she's given a little bit more breathing room because that Jim Steinman is just like this wall of sound that won't stop. Mm-hmm. And then this song kind of gives her some space to actually perform. Yes. And uh, uh, Marilyn Martin, by the way, is um, best known for uh, her 1985 duet with Phil Collins, which is uh, Separate Lives. Ah. So um, Stevie Nicks, though, is on uh, the backing vocals of this. Now, I just want to ask, why would you put Stevie Nicks on backing vocals? She's motherfucking Stevie Nicks. She's a legend. She is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. That's how great she is. My only my only clue is that if you suddenly had Stevie Nicks singing as Ellen Aim, everybody would know. I guess, but Marilyn Martin sounds enough like Stevie Nicks. Plausible deniability? I guess. Like, well, it's not Stevie Nicks. Yeah, well, well, it sure as hell ain't Stevie Nicks. Which then <laughs> opens the question, mm-hmm. why not have uh, Marilyn Martin sing all of Ellen's things? That's a good question. Because I really don't know. Because later, uh, Maria McKee sings one of Ellen's songs. Mm-hmm. So we have and three then... different vocalists for Ellen. And then at the very end, they bring back the original vocalist again. I do not uh, understand it at all. It doesn't make any sense. Like, see, it just further proves my theory that they kind of made this movie on the fly. <laughs> like, they didn't think about the musical part of it until it was way too late. Mm-hmm. Because, but, like, most of the songs are fine. It's just then you have to incorporate them into the film. And that's not as elegant as some of the songs on their own are. Mm-hmm. And it does. This stands alone. As a soundtrack. I mean, it's pretty cheesy 80s. It's extremely Jim Steinman. Mm-hmm. But it works. You could listen yeah. to this. It's it's a perfectly decent soundtrack. Like, I could, I didn't skip anything. No. Like, listening to this. So, I, I would agree. Um, so, yeah. But, yeah, so that's, so, and that is actually, um, while that video is playing, 
baby doll sees Ellen walking through the streets of fire slash rage slash of no name uh, and runs up to her and talks about how she's her biggest fan. I know you. I know who you are, Dig. I love your stuff so much. I really do. Look, if you love me so much, why don't you just go away and leave us alone? No, look, I'm your biggest fan, really. Let me go with you, okay? I won't be any trouble. And I'll tell you guys something. You gotta get off the street, because the cops know the guys that hit their battery will be coming through here. Here, I think, is the moment where the audience should turn against Ellen. Because okay. Ellen is such a raving bitch here. And we don't know a whole lot about Ellen, except that she got kidnapped. And I get it, she's tired, and maybe that's a very human reaction. But this is a movie where we've just seen Willem Dafoe in patent leather waders. <laughs> so is yeah. realism really what you want to go for here? And that's something in this film that is consistent, is there is never a nice word between anyone. In fact, Baby Doll's words of just like, oh, you're my favorite and you're really great, might be the nicest thing anyone says in this film. Yeah, absolutely. It's the only compliment anybody gets. And also, like, during this sequence, like, as Sorcerer's playing, the movie itself is starting to cut in and out of the music video like it's a music video itself. But it does it in a weird way where, like, they'll, cu- they'll like, cut to a- or they'll stop and do a freeze frame and they'll cut to black. And then they'll come back to the video and they'll do a freeze frame and they cut to black again. And it's like, does Walter Hill know what a music video looks like? Yeah. I don't think he does. <laughs> And it does a lot of really, really weird fades, which I'm kind of here for. The fades are, are a nice touch. Like I, ha- those are those are uh, interesting at least. Mm-hmm. But because they it it, it kind of looks like, um, like do you remember? Have you ever watched Home Improvement? A long time ago. And the way those like scene transitions would be very animated and strange. It kind of reminds me of that, where like the scene transitions always look like a car running over like some the, like the film. And the tire treads are the scene transitions. (laughs) But yeah, it's just for a movie that's set or for a movie that was made in like at the height of MTV madness. I don't understand why this looks the way it does, because like they know what music videos look like. There's a TV channel that plays them nonstop all day. They can go study that. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. And I think it's probably because like these are these people are not plugged into what's going on with MTV. They just want to ride this wave because they know that's what makes money. Yeah, it's also, it's like the kind of guys you see in um, MFA programs who have, they don't read books, but they think they can write one. Yeah, I mean, who has time to read? Yeah. Jeez. So, uh, anything else you want to say about uh, Sorcerer? Except that it is extremely Stevie Nicks. It's a lovely song. I like it a lot. I like it okay. Um, It wasn't one that stuck with me, but in watching the film, I instantly, like, when I heard it start up, I'm like, I bet that's Sorcerer by Stevie Nicks, because I was mm-hmm. looking at the soundtrack uh, as I was um, as I was watching. I was like, yep, that's it. Uh-huh. So the next song on the soundtrack is, for whatever reason, the song that ends the film at the end of the credits. Uh, it's The Fix performing deeper and deeper. Let's go to a clip. Was 
this is so so 80s i know it's kind of ridiculously <laughs> 80s it, kinda, it doesn't really fit with the rest of the soundtrack no i'm not sure what this is doing here but i kind of like it it's all right i'm not it's a fine. i'm not a huge um fan of the fix uh one thing leads to another is all right yeah it's just they're not new wave is so hit or miss for me and i think part of that's because new wave is it's a huge genre mm-hmm. this stuff doesn't doesn't do it for me oh i i'm really just not a not a big fan of this one yeah, it's it's perfectly listenable, but it really stands apart from the rest of the album. And and I wonder if that's because because it has a very stripped down new wave sound. Like it's it's and I don't mean stripped down in an acoustic sense, but compared to Jim Steinman, yeah, it's pretty. It's a lot narrower in its, it's, its sound palette. It's more modern. Mm-hmm. As, it's more contemporaneous to the 80s than a Jim Steinman song. Yes. And I'm I'm coming up with a theory in my head here, so just follow along with me okay. for a second. I mean, this 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 move this whole movie is built as a rock and roll fable. So the whole idea is like they're they're taking you back to like a stylized version of the 50s. And at the end of the credits, this as the movie's ending and you're getting up to leave, they play a song that is so 80s like you you can't help but think, "Oh, right, I live in the 80s now." A song to like take you back into the real world sort of. Mm-hmm. That's the best explanation I can come up with. Yeah, although for it's... it being so, you know, quote unquote 50s the fact that uh, Ellen Aim and the Attack, who I keep wanting to call the Attractions, because I guess because I'm listening to a lot of Elvis Costello lately, um, Ellen Aim and the Attackers uh, are so 80s. They're so Absolutely. new wave, down to her costumes, down to the skinny ties and the pushed up sleeves on their skinny suits. It's, it's very confusing. You know what it kind of reminds me of? Like a better, a better. A film that does this better is Dirty Dancing. I was going to say Buckaroo Banzai, but okay. Okay, yeah. Well, because you know the big because Dirty Dancing takes place in the fifties. Mm-hmm. That's like the, the, the kind of the fact that everyone forgets about that movie just because of the soundtrack, basically. But like the big song from yeah. that movie is so incredibly eighties. Mm-hmm. You know, it is. Time of my, I've had the time of my life. It's so eighties. It's incredible. There's a lot of taffeta and puff sleeves in it. Yeah, and you just completely forget that the movie takes place in the fifties. I know. So I think that kind of pulls off what this one tries and fails to do here. Mm-hmm. But this one doesn't know what it is in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's trying to be too much for everybody. I actually want to jump ahead because I want to talk about uh, two songs. Okay. Um, one is the final side, final song on the A side, and the second is the final song on the B side. And these are the Blasters with "One Bad Stud" and "Blue Shadows." Let's hear a clip of uh, "One Bad Stud." plays in Torchies, which is the leather bar slash honky tonk slash strip club slash S&M club slash secret gambling paradise. I don't know. <laughs> Again, this is a very confusing film. So Torchies is located in the Battery, which is the 
I guess, bad part of this already clearly shitty area. It's the warehouse box factory district. I don't know. I guess. And this takes place supposedly in like a dystopian Chicago. Yeah. And it looks it because you have you have the the trains you know that that run above the city um now here's the thing so what what happens at this point in the film is that they have their merry band assembled which is tom cody who they alternately call tom and cody uh billy fish and his loud suits and our angel mccoy they've driven to the battery because Billy Fish knows that she's being held at Torchy's. He knows this somehow. I guess it was a club they used to play. Apparently there are only two clubs in all of dystopian Chicago. I, I, I know the cops don't do anything in this movie, but like if he knows where, where they kidnapped her to, why doesn't he call the cops? I don't know. Or why doesn't, it, why don't the cops would, say like, oh, maybe we should check Torchy's. It would cost him 10000 less dollars to call the cops. I know. So they drive there. Uh, everybody insults everybody just constantly. It's pretty unpleasant. And uh, M- M- McCoy goes in to do recon. Yes. Because they don't know her. Mm-hmm. And, and she is... She, uh, so some random guy just h- comes up and hits on her. And she plays along because this is the best thing to do in this situation. And she takes him to a back room and promptly uh, puts a gun in his face and then kicks him in the nuts. She is a he- we we stand a legend. We we are we are not worthy. We are not worthy of McCoy. We are not. Um, and she busts up a, a poker game. And all this time, Willem Dafoe is whose name is Raven, by the way. Yeah, that's. Not Eric Draven. He's from The Crow, another dystopian nightmare of a film um, that is iconic and beloved for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Streets of Fire is The Crow of the 80s. Let's not go crazy here. (laughs) But um, he is wearing what can only be described as patent leather waders with no shirt. (laughs) And he looks like he weighs about 98 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Like originally, I I misheard. I thought that somebody said his 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 gang's name was the Farmers, and when I saw <laughs> him in this getup, I was like, "Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes perfect sense." Um, and he so he's kidnapped Ellen, and he's holding her. He's tied her to a bed. You know, you're making things real hard on yourself. You act nice. You and me fall in love for a week or two, and then I let you go. Nobody gets hurt. Which is such Ugh. a deranged thing to say, and delightfully so, but also, dude, she's not worth it. Not really, she's no. She's not really worth that kind of obsession. You kidnap this girl to do what to do God knows what to her for a week and then let her go? Come on. Well, I guess he feels like he can because the cops aren't doing anything. Well, I guess so. The cops in this reminded me of samurai cop where they cut to his partner and he would just be nodding like in a different room (laughs) that's what this just the cops did nothing like everything that happens in this movie the in front of the cops they just look at each other and shrug and go oh yeah and they drive off yes to go get a donut or something yeah they're not even corrupt they're just lazy yeah but so they break in and they rescue her they they have done nothing else 
in this. This is 45 minutes into the movie. Meanwhile, Tom Cody is going to go and cause a distraction. His distraction, shooting motorcycles until they explode. <laughs> and they explode. Like the street, the, the title Streets of Fire, that's not a joke. Yeah. They <laughs> Lots just, of things explode in this movie. It's pretty wild. But nobody gets killed. Like they made a, they were very consciously trying to avoid like an R rating. So nobody dies from this motorcycle explosion fest, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Yeah, it's kind of great. Later, they drive uh, a van through some motorcycles, mm-hmm. and they also explode, and it's amazing. There's fire but, everywhere. So, like, with this motorcycle explosion, like, in the midst of all this, McCoy rescues uh, Ellen, and they escape, and then T- Tom Cody is causing this destruction outside, and then Cody and Raven have their initial, like, meet-cute in front of the fire where Raven like walks through the flames and he has this very, very demonic kind of entrance. Like I wish that were the entrance to the, his entrance to the film because it's so good. Yes. But even then, like, it's just like, they kind of stare each other down. They do nothing. And then Cody escapes. Yeah. And all this time. So when they're in the bar, uh, the blasters who are a rockabilly group uh, are playing and they're playing live. These two songs, uh, One Bad Stud of Blue Shadows, Blue Shadows is all right. One Bad Stud is great. I mm. love Rockabilly, despite my better judgment. I love it. And Rockabilly had kind of a resurgence in the 80s as we started to see this like 50s fetishization of uh, pinup culture and hot rods. You had the Stray Cats, obviously, were kind of the big one. Um, and uh, the Blasters were were one of those bands that kind of uh, hopped in. Yeah, I don't know too much about these guys. Like, I, I've heard of them before, but like, this is really my first real exposure to the Blasters. Yeah, so, and um, um, the other um, what acts like this are sort of more known as is um, cowpunk. Okay, which is that kind of uh, it's it's that subgenre of of rockabilly that has a little bit more of a uh of a punk sound of a new wave sound yeah more of an edge to it yeah Mm -hmm. so which um i kind of dig they i'm I'm into it yeah yeah and they've also um appeared in they've had uh songs in uh from dusk till dawn bull durham uh miami vice six feet under uh jackass 3d Oh wow! Uh, Marin and um, uh, the show Mayans. So their music is still being used. Good for them. Yeah, that's the sign of like a good like a you know longevity is when you get to be like a a psycho Billy kind of retro act and you're still being brought back in like 2018, 2019. Mm-hmm. That's that's really cool. Yeah. Um. And actually, 2012 they recorded uh an album. That featured a duet with Exine Cervenka of X. Oh, wow. Whose uh, ex-partner, John Doe, as we've established, was not in this film, although he should have been. That's true. That's correct. Yes. So. Oh, boy. Yes. Um, that, I would have to say, probably One Bad Stud is my standout track on this one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Blue Shadow is it's pretty good, too. But yeah, I... I, I... Tend to agree. One bad stud is the the standout, and because it's 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 a little more high energy. It's got mm-hmm. that that sort of classic rockabilly sound that we think of. 
Yeah, I think Blue Shadows sounds more like it would would have been a Chuck Berry song, and it seems a little more just like straight down the middle. Mm-hmm. What's odd is um, as they're playing one bad stud, mm-hmm. there is uh, this this stripper that we've established um, is just doing a very very weird dance. You, it kind of has to be seen to believe. It, I can't really describe it on a podcast. The the best I, the best way I can describe it is if you remember uh, Linnea Quigley's striptease from Return of the Living Dead. It's basically that. Yes, that's a good way to put it. And it's it works with the music, but she's in fishnets and she's yeah. very androgynous looking. Ian's like, is that a boy? Or and because I was thinking like, oh, it's in like a a gay club in the eighties because. I was like, why not? This movie's, you know, already kind of breaking weird molds here. And nope, shook her top off. And yeah, I'm surprised they didn't go there. But that was like the, the the one line I guess they didn't really cross. Yeah, I would have been. I would have thought that was actually kind of cool, though. If they'd had this sort of, and you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's no great loss, I guess. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, also, in with all this... Uh, a part of the movie that we forgot to mention was Ed Bagley Jr. is also in this movie for one scene. Really? They're going to Torchies because they know that's where Ellen is being kept. And then this guy, just Drifter, just pops up out of nowhere looking like he slept in the trash. And it's Ed Bagley Jr. And he tells them exactly what they already know. Yeah. And then, and then Tom, like, elbows Fish and says, pay him. And then Bagley goes, yeah, pay me. <laughs> It's a really funny scene. But that I think really speaks to this whole film is that there's never there's never any tension. There's no point for him to tell us what we already know. We know she's at Torchies. Billy Fish told us she was at Torchies. And guess what? She's at Torchies. They rescue her. There's never uh, there's not that quest narrative, your princess is in another castle kind of thing. Unless it's played for a joke, which this scene is, but the rest of the movie isn't. Mm-hmm. So it, it really stands out like a sore thumb. Yes. Um, and I mean, I think it's a funny scene, but like, yeah, it doesn't need to be here other than like uh, to give Ed Begley Jr. an excuse to show up in this movie. Hmm. I don't know. All right. You want to flip to the B side on this one? Let's flip to the B side. So track number, I'm going to guess it's number six. Yes. Is okay. So we started the, the soundtrack and this film and this podcast with a Jim Steinman song. And on side two, track number six uh, we get, once again, a Jim Steinman song. It's the song that Ellen Aim and the Attackers play at the end of the film as they return triumphantly to the nightclub uh, from the beginning, where they sing, Tonight is what it means to be young. Yes, let's, let's hear a few minutes of that. Sounds like every other Jim Steinman song we've ever heard. Tonight, that's what I made to be young. <laughs> now, yeah. I kept thinking this song was only the young from the Vision Quest soundtrack, and that's by Journey. That was what, like, in my head, I was hearing when I was trying to think of tonight is what it means to be young. And I'm going <laughs> to say that uh, only the young is a better song. I'm not going to disagree, but only because uh, I find jim steinman kind of hard to defend in general <laughs> i like some jim steinman but as we've established like it can be a little much to take in 
He's Baroque. He, yes. <laughs> and speaking of Baroque and things that are too much, this song is seven minutes long. It is extremely long. And at this point, uh, so she's returned and she's playing at uh, at the nightclub. And <sighs> we have to talk about this because this film goes, I don't know if it goes out of its way to make you hate all the characters or if it's, it's really if, trying hard if walter hill just didn't know how to write anything because ahead of the triumphant um scene where uh cody and raven fight with first sledgehammers uh yes. which reminded me of the rake fight in uh hobgoblins another great <laughs> rock and roll fable they he and Ellen are going to run off together and because they have to leave town to get away from the bombers. Right. So Ellen and Cody and McCoy board a, bu- a train. And then Cody punches Ellen in the face. Ugh. Hard enough to knock her out and then tells McCoy to, like, take care of her so that he can turn around and go back and fight uh, the bombers. I just, I want to reiterate that. He punches her in the face. That's our hero, ladies and gentlemen. Our hero punches a defenseless woman in the face. Hard enough to knock her out. Now, would John Wayne punch a woman? Actually, yeah, he would. I take it back. He totally would do that. That's that's exactly what an anti-hero would do, and that's probably exactly why they put it in here. That doesn't make it better. It's just like, oh, yeah, this is the thing that happens in the 50s movies that I like to watch. Let's put it in here. I guess. I can't think of another movie that where where the main character punches the woman of his dreams in the face. I don't know. I just can't think of one, like, off the top of my head. And it's such an odd choice, too. Yes. And so he, you know, surprise, surprise, he beats up Raven and he goes to uh, Ellen's concert and she is surprisingly chill about the whole punch. in the She mentions it. She's like, oh, you're the guy with the right hook. She looks great for a woman who just got her face punched in. And what's... (sighs) Hilarious isn't the right word, but Billy Fish is like, I know that she loves you. You can run off with her. Like, uh, one that's not really your decision, Billy. Yeah, for real. Also, like, why are you being nice now? You have done nothing but snipe at each other. You have literally not helped the entire film. Yeah, you don't help now. Yeah, you've just been like a giant jerk. And also, he punched your girl. He slept with your girlfriend and then punched her in the face. No way. No way is that guy getting anywhere near her. That's like asserting your dominance over some other dude, like, to the factor of ten. (laughs) It's insane. I mean, I'm just surprised he didn't, like, after all that, just, like, whip out his dick and pee in Billy Fish's mouth. (laughs) Fart in his face. Like, go go, go to his house and and steal his dog. Feed his dog. Okay, now your dog belongs to me now. Also, I'm engaged to your mom now. Also, I punched (laughs) your dog in the face. (laughs) It's so weird. It's this weird display of, 
like, like alpha just, and beta masculinity that I don't understand. It's just like just the straight faced aggression for no reason. Yeah, and it's also very. This is the room of musicals. Yeah, and and speaking of the room, like these, none of these characters know how to read one. Yes. <laughs> yes, and but, so right. they so they have their like their parting words, and he's gonna like walk off and look i know you're gonna be going places with your singing and stuff and i'm not the kind of guy to be carrying guitars around for you but if you ever need me for something i'll be there and so then she sings tonight is what it means to be young and he and mccoy drive off and luckily mccoy reminds him like i'm not your like you're not my type and I think he just needs, like, a big flashing sign that's like, lesbian! She's a lesbian! She does not like men. You are not her type because you are a man. She's a lesbian. But it was the 80s, so. It's the 80s, and, and we didn't talk about stuff like that. Yeah, well. But all, uh, It's so 2019, all... motherfucker. We're talking. Fair enough. I'm not going to complain. Yeah. Anywho, so uh, tonight is what it means to be young. Is performed again by by you know Fire Incorporated, Ellen and her Ellen and her band, and also the the Sorrels, which we haven't really addressed yet. All perform this song together. It's and it's like it's like this. It's the best way that I can describe this. It's like the big uh, dance party at the end of every cartoon you've ever seen. It except, is, except like two or three of the main characters aren't there to help dance along, and every like it should be everybody's on stage singing this song, you know. But it's it's really not. It's just like the two groups playing together, which is fine, I guess. Uh, but um, I do also want to point out Jim Steinman apparently wrote this song uh, in two days because they realized they weren't actually going to be able to use the Bruce Springsteen song streets of fire, (laughs) (laughs) which forced them to completely rebuild the entire concert set, have Jen Steinman write a song, rush it back to the studio and get everybody on the same page to like reshoot this entire ending. Cause, Oh, whoops. Bruce doesn't want to play ball with us anymore. (laughs) Oh, and also it still managed to be a seven minute long song. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, the the story goes that when when Steinman turned the song into the producers, the producers just cursed his name because like, well, God damn it, why are you so good at this? And he's like, I don't know. I'm I'll just Jim Steinman. I'm Jim Steinman, motherfuckers. Fight me. <laughs> so, I got I got meatloaf money. I don't need to do shit. Yeah, this is actually between this and Nowhere Fast. This is the better song. I I agree. It's a better song to end the film too. Yes, and for some reason I don't know what it is. Um, Fire Inc. actually uh, sounds better on this one. They sound more like the Steinman songstress that they should. Yeah. And this it's they also, get it right. It's also not as frantic as the opening song either. Yes. That one just like, that gives you a panic attack listening to this <laughs> song. But this one is a little, a little bit more mellow, a little bit more melancholy, and it just, it works better. But it also rocks. It rocks and it rules. And we should do rock and rule sometime. Uh, never mind. Getting off topic. Okay. <laughs> so I actually, since we mentioned the Sorrells, I would like mm. to jump ahead to I Can Dream About You. Absolutely. The one song, if you don't know Streets of Fire, the one song I guarantee you know, Dan Hartman's I Can Dream About You. Down here below where the street sees me lonely for you. 
I do love this song. Fun fact about me, um, my favorite genre when I was a young woman, probably like preteen, adult contemporary. Because I'm a, I was a cool kid. You were a goth into adult contemporary. I could. I wasn't that. quite a goth yet. I was still proto goth because this is when I was like thirteen. I had this song on a mixtape, probably taped from B ninety five point five, the adult contemporary channel in upstate New York. This song rules. It does rule. Before we were kind of prepping this episode, I was talking to my parents and I mentioned we were going to do Streets of Fire, and they both kind of went, "I don't really remember that. What's on that soundtrack?" And I had I sang like half of a bar of this song, and they both went, "Oh yeah, that song." Yeah, this got a lot of radio play. This this is kind of the the hit. Mm-hmm. This is what propelled it to you know twenty weeks on the charts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, originally written for Hall and Oates by Dan Hartman. This song is not Hall and Oates material. It kind of sounds like he's trying to parody Hall and Oates. Yeah, a little bit. It's it's too soft. It's it doesn't. It's not from the mean streets of Philadelphia. Right, right. But uh, what's interesting about this song is in the movie the Sorrells are performing it at the end of the at the end of you know everything. Now the Sorrells are a group that they pick up because they need they ditch the car that they kidnapped or they retrieved Ellen in. They didn't kidnap her. Um, and they get in this van with this kind of um, R and B group. It's like a doo-wop group, yeah. Yeah. And the one moment of joy in this film is they're driving along, McCoy's driving, and they are singing Countdown to Love. Mm Mm-hmm. Just a cappella in the van, and everyone is smiling and having a good time. And you're just like, wow, everyone's friends here. This is great. And, you know, of course, it's immediately wrecked and ruined because they run into the cops but um and, that song and they, is and they, ha- they then have to play it off as like oh we're trying to get this band to their gig yeah <laughs> uh, which is such a great you know rock movie cliche but um but like that should have been the movie that should have been the whole movie yeah should have been this like what like wild adventure across town to like all these random characters to get this rock band to their concert that's what i thought the movie was gonna be yeah um alas the version of this mm-hmm. um, is their version is not in the film. They got no. they have all these. It's a movie about musicians, and none of those musicians, none of the actors sing their own songs, and none you know. And and none of the musicians are in the movie. Yes, and yeah. then versions that are in the movie are not on the soundtrack. Right, because this song is per- in the in the movie at least. This song is performed by Winston Ford, and I think it's better than the Dan Hartman version. It absolutely is. I mean, the Dan Hartman version is it's white mom it, music. Yeah, it's it is the eighties. Yeah, it's too smooth. It's too produced. It's too polished. Mm-hmm. So this song, fun fact about this, this is a fun Libby fact. Um, this song was written by uh, Kenny Vance who was one of the original founding members of Jay and the Americans. Oh. And um, in 1967, a songwriting duo uh, made up of Walter Becker and Donald Fagan uh, knocked on his door and like, hey, we wrote some songs. And he offered to manage them. 
they uh, they arranged horn and string connections for Jay and the Americans, toured with them a little bit. He brought one of their songs, I Mean to Shine, uh, for Barbara Streisand. And um, then when they were hired at ABC Dunhill Records, they released their first album as Steely Dan. That was Can't Buy a Thrill in 1972. Neato. So that is our our tie to Steely Dan. All right, take a drink, everybody. Yes. We got there. We're going to get Steely Dan on this motherfucking podcast one of these days. Mm. It's going to happen. I believe in us. I really do. Yes, we can do it. Um, During this number in the film, as the Sorrells are performing the song to an audience that absolutely loves the shit out of that song. They're freaking the fuck out. Backstage, uh, Billy Fish is watching, and he's like, You know something, Waldo? We're going to be rich. Yeah. Long live rock and roll. It's so cynical. It's like it's such an uplifting, joyous song, and it's such a cynical note to end it on. I know. I I love Billy Fish. He's a fucking garbage dump, but I love him. <laughs> now, uh, would it surprise you, Libby, to know that this was supposed to be the first of a tr- first film in a trilogy of films about the adventures of Tom Cody? It doesn't surprise me, but it really depresses me. How's that? That works. Yeah. <laughs> And because this film made almost no money at all, the, that did not happen. Uh, but not but not for lack of trying, because uh, in, I want to say it was 2004, uh, Michael Perry came back to play Tom Cody in another film that had nothing to do with uh, Walter Hill, a film called Road to Hell, which uh, I, I'm guessing went straight to video. Oh, boy. It, it made... Oh, my God. It came out in 2008. It made $1,440. <gasps> Where can we find this? <laughs> um, Let's see. It's probably on the internet somewhere. We must watch it. Does Jim Steinman do any music for that? Good Lord, I hope not. <laughs> there is not a soundtrack listing. I don't know. Damn. So that is your... Uh, Fun fact about Streets of Fire 2, the, uh, the firing? I don't know. <laughs> it makes sense that a, a sequel to Streets of Fire would be called Road to Hell, because that's basically the same thing. Yeah. So. But uh, oh. we have a little bit more ground to cover uh, before we wrap all of this up. Um, specifically, uh, one one last song, because we kind of talked about all the others. Um, the one last song we need to cover, I guess, is uh, Never Be You by Maria McKee, which appears as... So once again, Tom is reminiscing about Ellen. This is kind of after they... Or this is right before. This is when he knows he has to go and rescue her, and he's reminiscing about the times when Ellen used to sing on stage. And he's remembering her singing Never Be You, which is a song that was written by Tom Petty and one of his heartbreakers. Yes. And it shows... Yes. It's a very Tom Petty song. It is extremely Tom Petty, which means it's very good. It is a good song. Yeah, yeah. And it is sadly wasted. And this is, uh, Mar- Maria McKee is our, I guess by this point in the film, our second Ellen yes. Aim. Yeah. She's the third Ellen Aim on the soundtrack. Um, well, let's, let's play a clip. Yeah, let's go ahead and listen to it. Never be 
I, I really think this movie is like a if anything else, this movie it could be a good case study for like studying like authorship in music because the songs that are are written by like famous musicians really really sound like those musicians, mm-hmm. and I, and something about that fascinates me. Like as as much of as you know auteur theory is can be applied to film you know spielberg films always look like spielberg films hitchcock always looks like hitchcock like there's just something about a tom petty song that just you can just hear it coming a mile away mm-hmm. and that this is definitely one of those songs well what what are some of the hallmarks what would you say that like well like you know like th- every jim steinman song is going to have like a, a breathless verse and, cor- and chorus every um stevie nicks song is going to kind of sound like you're wandering through a field I guess that kind of describes Tom Petty too. Yeah, um, but it's a little more grounded. Hers are a, hers are a field in on the ethereal plane. That's true. And his are more uh, like overgrown. On, his his is more like a cornfield on the side of the road, kind of. Yeah, but not yeah. in a John Cougar Mellon camp way. No, 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 no. <laughs> we hate that guy. <laughs> so, um, which I thought was interesting then that they had a woman singing this. Which, yeah, it, we haven't it experimented works. with women singing Tom Petty enough. I don't think so. Like it, it works better than you would think it does. Mm-hmm. Like Tom Petty already kind of has. I'm not going to call it a feminine voice, but kind of. Um, uh, it's very nasally. Right it's very nasally. Thank you. It's kind of a it's nasally a voice and kind of a high. Exactly, and so it makes sense that it would work with a, a female singer. Mm-hmm. I think. I don't. I don't think. Like I don't think. Uh, I don't think Barry White could sing a Tom Petty song. No. You know? But Stevie Nicks probably could. That's, yeah, actually, well, I mean, they, they do edit together. So there you go. Yeah. So I'm not Absolutely. Quit dragging my heart around. Uh-huh. Stop dragging go. my heart around. Yeah, stop, I, I, stop I, dragging my heart around. I appreciate that you knew that just right off the top of your head. That's what I'm here for. That's what that's what we pay you for. Yeah. So I'm... Um, how would you rank that? Okay, so if we if we think about Ellen Aim and the Attractions as mm. a band, we've got Nowhere Fast, Sorcerer, uh, Tonight is What It Means to Be Young, and Never Be You. Uh, rank them. Ooh. I'm going to have to say, um, Tonight's What It Means to Be Young is like number one for me. It's, it's right there. I think Never Be You would be number two, Sorcerer three, Nowhere Fast four. I'm going to go uh, with Tonight is What It Means to Be Young, mm-hmm. Sorcerer, Never Be You, Nowhere Fast. Okay. So we're basically on the same page. Yeah. Um, I See, as a band, I feel like that, that means they have like an incredible range because they can, they can good Lord, they can do all kinds of stuff. But uh, at the same time, <sighs> something about this band strikes me as uh, phony because... Maybe they just farm out all their songs to other musicians or they steal from other hmm. musicians. I don't know that this band wrote those songs. I don't think so. The other thing is that if they're supposed to be a new wave band, mm-hmm. um, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are very much a rock and roll band. Yes. Um, Fleetwood Mac uh, is a blues band. Uh, yeah. And she, Jim and- Steinman is, he's like musical theater, like retro musical theater Sort He's of rock opera kind of thing. He's rock opera man, yeah. And so nowhere do they have any new. The only new wave that really appears on this would be the Fix. 
Yeah, and they don't play a, the band does not play a fixed song. Like they don't play anything resembling like uh, uh, Talking Heads or Blondie or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's all like kind of fifties throwback kind of kind of music. Yeah, and that's where the Blasters come in with mm-hmm. that that rockabilly. But that's it's lumped into new wave, and new wave is so much of what we think of as like the eighties is sort of categorized under new wave. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the the rockabilly thing and ha- not being played, it's it's confusing because the rockabilly songs aren't played in the section of dystopian Chicago where they're all wearing poodle skirts. That's a good point. Yeah, it's they're played it, it's... in the leather bar. Uh, I guess that's a more 80s section. In why are there poodle squirts in the movie at all? Like uh, it's that rock and roll fable thing again. But like that's kind of the only time it's really ever reinforced. Yeah, it's this movie is baffling. Is I think it just <laughs> it really comes down is. to it is baffling. I mean, we should have we should have said right up right up front. Like the first two title cards you see in the entire film, the first one says a rock and roll fable. The second one just says another time, another place. So that gives them free reign to like do '80s stuff and '50s stuff and mash them together, which is kind of what a lot of the '80s was was like weird '50s nostalgia filtered through just mountains of cocaine. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really gel in any kind of way that's interesting or any way that's even stylized you've got a bunch of extras from bye bye birdie mm-hmm. and then a bunch of extras from i don't from even, the from like the outsiders yeah or th- you know the crow which obviously was going to be yeah. another 10 years but so you're not really sure what is is actually happening because the two never blend consistently yeah, and so you just get all of these things sort of thrown together. So you, you get a movie that's very modern in its look and its feel and production, and then you get like a very, a very retro kind of stylized fifties throwback in the musical side of the film. But it's and you, it's you jar- mash them together, and it just I it's don't know. jarring. It is, and it's not even and it's an it's authentic not held- look of the yeah. 50s. And it's not helped at all that, like, the plot doesn't really hang together. Like, they rescue the girl right away, and then the next 45 to 50 minutes is just them driving through the streets. Mm-hmm. Doing basically nothing. Yeah. They're just being rude to each other. Really mean. Yeah. And, like, you, and you can do a film like that. Like, Walter Hill also directed The Warriors, which is basically, like, a gang running through the streets, beating each other up, and... Uh, you know, just trying to get from point A to point B, but that movie does it in a way that makes the characters, you know, that makes use of its characters and has an interesting plot and doesn't just resolve itself in the first thirty minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this and also is... it, it's also not trying to be a musical. Yeah, this is definitely a Wattpad fan fiction mm-hmm. before Wattpad. Basically, I mean, uh, Walter Hill described this movie, like the setting of this movie, as basically being a high school. <laughs> which is insane to me. You can't see the face I'm making, but I want you to imagine the look of confusion that is on my face. <laughs> I just imagine your face like turned itself into a fist and it wants to hit me. <laughs> I just, I'm baffled. 
Like he wants he wants this to be a a high school drama, but also a, a fifties musical, but also like an eighties action movie. Like it's the what? Road Warrior meets Happy Days. <laughs> Which actually, now that I think about it, it sounds like an awesome film. It's yeah, it's Mad Max meets Footloose, which also I would love to see. All right. Um, that being said, I know we spent the last hour kind of making fun of this movie. I kind of enjoyed it. It's For kind as, of a it's <laughs> fascinating. As goofy and bizarre as it is, this is definitely a midnight movie. You cannot yeah. watch this before midnight. And I feel like this would be a really good one to screen again with something like this is kind of Repo Man for girls. <laughs> I see it. I really see it. Yeah, it's a love story. Yeah. Um, it's a love story where everyone hates each other. It's a love story between the audience and McCoy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, oh, my God. <laughs> we love her. But, yeah, I'm not... And, it's yeah, it's a love story that doesn't end well. I mean, like, he does... They don't get together. But it's still... It's got kisses in the rain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. So that, that's all you need. That's all you need for a, a hit film nowadays. Yeah. Is... Then, did you notice my husband pointed this out? Is So they kiss in the rain, and then I guess they make love because they're under the L-shaped sheet there. Sure. And they're still soaking wet. <laughs> I feel like I would towel off. You would think. But, I mean, so uh, as Lee Vang says at the end of the film, as Willem Dafoe gets destroyed in front of everyone, get out of here. <laughs> it's, it's time for us to go. Uh, but before we go, Libby, uh, what are we covering next week? Well, I'm sort of on this uh, this 40s, 50s uh, nostalgia kick here. So I think we're going to head back to the 90s. Back to the dark period in our time that was known as the Neo Swing Revival with the mask. Oh, baby, that's going to be a fun one. So grab your zoot suit and your crinoline, put your hair (laughs) in rollers, and let's go. Somebody stop me. (laughs) Uh, So, Libby, uh, where can our listeners uh, find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Libby Cudmore and on Instagram at record underscore Saturday. You can also uh, listen to me over on the Shattered Shield podcast. Uh, actually, our next episode is uh, going to be on the music of the Shield. So it's a little bit of a crossover. Ooh, neat. Yeah. That sounds like fun. It is. What about uh, you? Where can they find you, Joe? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cordial Wombat. And if you would like to hear me talk about Christmas movies, I do a show all about that. It's called Christmas Creeps. You can find us on Twitter at Christmas Creeps. I believe our next episode where we're going to be recording, well, by the time this episode comes out, it will have come out already, should be on uh, the movie Shazam, which came out this year, which, believe it or huh. not, is a Christmas movie. So that's going to be a ton of fun. Don't miss it. All right. And also, don't forget, we will be putting up a poll uh, when this episode airs. So stay tuned for that. Go check out, go check us out on Twitter at OST Party for that. Um, so if there's nothing else, uh, I have been Joseph Wade, and I'm Libby Cudmore. Buy the ticket. Take the ride. I don't want no scars to show. You.